doing you're listening to the arts report on citr 101.9 fm we're broadcasting from ubc's point gray campus on the unceded ancestral and traditional muscum territory in vancouver i am your host saira unju and we have a wonderful show for you today here at the arts report so i'm not gonna not gonna keep stuff long because as i said we have a bunch of wonderful stuff. So we're going to start off with Eva's interview with Amy Kazimerchik. I mm, probably butchered that last name. I apologize. You'll hear it uh, pronounced right in Eva's interview. And then we're going to go on to Silvana's review of the Polygon Gallery's Alternative Gazes. And then I will do my review of She Sells Seashells. And... We actually, I, I had an interview last episode with Sarah Rogers, who's the director of She Sells Seashells. So check that out too after this episode. And last but not least, we have my kind of, I will be talking about West Coast Chamber Music's um, recent concert, Trio of Trios. And we're actually broadcasting their music for you it's it's exclusive i'll talk more about it when the time comes but for now enjoy eva's interview and enjoy the show in general hey this is eva i'm joined today by amy kazmerchik curator of the exhibition thought outside hosted by the western front thanks so much for being here 
Ava, thanks for having me. Of course. So before we jump right into it, could you give us a little overview of what Thought Outside is? Um, sure. Thought Outside is a group exhibition. It features the work of um, Melinda Molino, Lai Wan, Roy Kiuka, Ken Lum, the collective Kiss and Tell, and Marlene Kreitz. The works were all made between the late 1970s and the 90s, and they're all lens-based. That means that they were made with a camera, so either still photography or moving image in the case of Laiwan, slide projections, in the case of Ken Lama, video. Um, and really, I would say that the show isn't about anything. Um, it was the thesis exhibition for my critical curatorial studies degree in the art history, visual art and theory department at UBC. And as it is a thesis exhibition, I think really what the show is, is it's a investigation or a, a kind of research project around this concept of the outside. And what I was interested in was this, how this word, the outside, is used sort of vernacularly um, to express a number of different positionalities in the world um, or a different, a different number of conditions. So oftentimes we can use the word outside to refer to something that is out of doors, so not inside. Um, we also talk about the outside of being outside a particular set of social conditions. So whether that is a religion or a language group or an ethnic history or a sense of national citizenship, there's a sense of an inside and also an outside. Um, the outside philosophically uh, often talks, uh, refers to the sense of a uh, a sense of exteriority or the sort of subjectivity of another person outside of one's own consciousness. And it can also be a physical delineation. So borders create the sense of an, an inside and an outside of space, um, certain forms of bound, physical boundaries, such as oceans or mountains or different geographical uh, conditions create this sense of being inside or outside of a, a spatial condition. And I guess I was interested in how this word, which we don't really use socially and politically in a way, but is actually quite a, a complex concept for thinking about a range of interconnected conditions that I think are all very prevalent right now. Um, and when I, I, so I really started with this word and this concept, and I wanted to see how artists were looking, were exploring this similar set of interstices or a kind of nexus between these conditions in this period of time. So it's really, it's like an open set of questions as an exhibition, maybe. Definitely. Yeah, I really liked how you mentioned the positionality um, aspect, and that was very clearly like framed in especially Melinda Molino's. Um, pieces. I loved how uh, in the main Cadbro, so Cadbro Bay, I should mention also, which is the the site of Melinda Bolano's work, is a beach in Victoria, and it was the site of um, Emanc Emancipation Day picnics for Black refugees from the U.S. Uh, and there's this one picture where it looks as though you're looking through from one positionality into another almost world, because two-fifths of the page, is, or the photo, is covered by foliage, and it looks like you're in one section looking into another. Um, and she used a pinhole camera for that work, uh, could you talk a little bit about the symbolic nature of the pinhole camera, which you mentioned a little bit in those podcasts? Oh, yeah. It's, it's interesting that you say that it feels like it's the photo expresses or represents the condition of being in one position and looking out at another. I'd have to think about that for a little bit. I hadn't really thought about that before. Yeah, I mean, I'm there was that, which is maybe just my own take on it. But I loved the kind of discussion that you were having. Oh, and the podcast I'll mention, we will link those in our podcast version of this episode in case you guys want to check it out. But it's a really cool conversation between yourself, Melinda and Laiwan, and then you have another one with some other artists. But uh, you were talking about how the pinhole camera is a long exposure uh, camera. So you've got to stand there for about 20 seconds, 30 seconds to get that photo. And it creates mm -hmm. a really interesting texture to the photos where... Uh, everything seems a little bit fuzzy or dreamlike almost, but um, mm -hmm. the shoreline at Cabro Bay is very clear and crisp in that photo, which I thought stood out, uh, mm -hmm. and you can actually see the 
the marks of the tide pulling away and the imprint it made on the sand. Uh, right. You were mentioning tidalectics and the metaphor of the tide in your podcast. Could you get yeah. into that a little bit? Sure. Okay, so the piece that you're talking about is um, made by Melinda Molino, and it was made in 1998, and it's called Cadborough Bay Index to an Incomplete History. And this piece was made while Melinda was living in Victoria, actually going to grad school there. And she became interested in this history um, that was uh, very rarely documented or exposed about these Emancipation Day picnics that were held on Cadborough Bay um, in the late 19th century. And they were held by a, a group of uh, African-American migrants who had left the U.S. after these fugitive slave laws were enacted in the late uh, 19th century. And they, they came to B.C. looking for refuge and looking for a different sense of freedom. Um, and they would hold these Emancipation Day picnics uh, representing um, the anniversary of Emancipation Day. And what Melinda became really interested in were these documents that would describe this kind of conviviality and this sense of leisure and this sense of sort of relaxation and everyday comfort of these images. Um, and that really this was a, a history of people residing in this place that was completely unpictured in images or visual documents and very rarely discussed. So she was really interested in this sort of um, distinction between a documented history and a palpable history in a place. And herself, as a Black Canadian person, was interested in how her presence on that land is equally metered by a sense of visuality or non-visuality and recognition. And I think she wanted to kind of straddle this similar this parallel between presence and absence visibility and invisibility so she decided to use a pinhole camera which like you say um requires a very very long exposure and you can't actually see what you're taking a photo of while you're doing it mm. so you just set it up and you just basically wait a length of time and she was interested in how having to stand there beside the camera for that length of time was also a register of her presence and I think maybe that's mm -hmm. what you're getting at a little bit is that when you when you see the perspective by which the photos are taken it's not just the sense that someone is behind the camera but you do get this sense of this kind of blurring of the image that offers maybe just presents the gesture of a sense of, of being there that is very, very distinct, I think, even from the other images, even though there's no people in the images at all. Mm -hmm. um, and in the podcast, so uh, uh, parallel to the exhibition, I recorded two podcasts, one with Melinda Molino and Laiwan in conversation, and one with Craig Burgold and... Um, Susan Stewart from Kiss and Tell in conversation. Those are available on the Western Front's website. And both Laiwan and Melinda do talk about um, this sense of uh, a kind of circular history or history coming around in circular motions. And this idea of a kind of dialectical relationship to time and place and being that is circular or that maybe um, references more the kind of like uh returning movement of the tide mm -hmm. rather than a kind of linear sense of time so that's where the term tidalactics comes from and it's uh melinda who actually brings it up and it's a reference to an author whose name i'm just forgetting right now but she talks about it at length in the podcast if people are interested yeah, that's super interesting. I love the kind of, and there's a lot of cyclical themes and like non-linear themes in the rest of the exhibition. Laiwan's photography uh, features a lot of circular architecture. Um, I thought that oh, was that's cool so great theme. you picked up on that. I wondered how many people were going to pick up on that just by looking at it. Yeah. Um, yeah, and she also talks about that in the podcast as well. Um, there's sort of two significant sites. Uh, Laiwan's piece was made in Zimbabwe um which is where she was born and it takes place at two sites a, a place called great zimbabwe which is a kind of ancient kingdom that was built by indigenous people and also at a dam that was built by colonists and yeah she was very interested in this kind of circular circular architecture but also the way that this kind of like human architecture human design also works with and against the land 
and using uh, partially why she picked these two sites was that when she was living there during apartheid, um, she wasn't allowed to visit these sites. There was like very strict racial uh, protocols around who could and couldn't move to some of these territories. And her family had to leave actually during uh, independence and the revolution. And she returned back a number, a few years later, and realized that she was able to go to these sites for the first time and sort of under, have a kind of more, an expanded spatial understanding of this place that she had lived and was interested in how the topography of the land itself held some of these um, very contentious and conflicting narratives around colonization and decolonization in Zimbabwe. So, yeah. yeah. And I like the word returning in terms of her story because she left apartheid Rhodesia when she was, I think, only 17 or something like that. And then she's she's gone away and she's coming back. It's, again, this cyclical kind of maybe closing of a circle. And um, with Melinda's work, it's these people returning back to this place year after year um, in a kind of, yeah, cyclical fashion. Um, I had another question about kind of that idea. So the the changing relationship to space is another thing that is expressed a lot Mm -hmm. and how the function of the space transforms over time. So we've touched on it a little bit, but how is that expressed in the exhibition? But also, why do you think that that's a relevant discourse for Mm -hmm. us on this land? Um, Well, there's another thing maybe I want to say about those two works and and a a sense of return. Laiwan's work was made in 1983, I believe. I could be wrong, it could be 1982, but it was actually also her grad show in her BFA at Emily Carr. Right. And after screening um, once in the early 80s, it was never shown again. And it actually is built in this very complicated apparatus um, involving a four-track player, an analog controller called a coyote, three slide projectors. I mean, it's, it's quite elaborate. And as time continued, it became more and more difficult to be installed because the technology itself became antiquated. And we had to do a huge amount of uh, technical work to translate some of the operations to digital to be able to show it again. Parallel to this, Melinda's prints were destroyed shortly after they were made in 1998, and they hadn't shown since their original exhibition, and so we actually remade the prints for this show, and I think that this was a really important part of the presentation of these works in the exhibition, was thinking about how you know, sometimes artworks get lost to history, or they just don't get recognized in the moment when they're made. And they almost kind of go dormant or they start, they almost go into hibernation or something for a period of time. And then sometimes time just comes around where there's another point where they seem like absolutely crucial and vital to the discourse of, of a time. And then they kind of come out and are rediscovered again. And I think that, you know, there's a lot to be said around, I mean, I don't really want to instrumentalize their work politically so much Mm -hmm. but I do really think that in both cases there's a different type of consciousness and a different level of recognition going on around land rights around diasporic conditions um, around the experiences of what it means to be Canadian and how a range of people negotiate that very complex um, sense of belonging reconciliation and a sense of decolonial politics and how we uh, are rethinking um, the way in which the land is named and represented and organized and stewarded. And I think that these are some of the things that the climate that we're in now really made the created the opportunity for these works to be brought back out into the gallery and to be looked at again with a totally different level of attention. And I think that, that, that this is, it's super exciting for both the artists to be able to do this. And for me as a curator, it was also, I think, a really important learning process of thinking through um, the archive or what an archive is, thinking through different um, temporalities in terms of cultural production, 
Um, and really, I think working with a different level of patience and attenuation to details in cultural production and archives that might have been overlooked or lost, but aren't entirely forgotten. And it's not entirely impossible to revisit them um, within a new framework and a new lens. So I think that that was also a really important part of um, including those works in particular. Definitely. I love that. Okay, well, this is wrapping it up. Unfortunately, that's just about all the time we've got. Um, thank you so much for talking to me about this. I could feel like I could go on for another half hour, but um, that is all the time. So Thought Outside is still available, actually, for viewing, right? Until the 30th, Saturday? Yes, um, until this coming up Saturday. And there are exhibition images online that you're welcome to go view. And the two podcast conversations with the four artists will be up indefinitely. So mm -hmm. they can be listened to after the fact. Yeah, and if you view our, this episode on um, the CITR website, we'll link all of those things down below. And admission is free, yes, so people can go yeah. check it out. And also, and it's a very, very safe gallery to be at. They only allow three people in at a time, and it's very small and quiet and um, very COVID safe. Yes, good point. And then um, we also had a note that Laiwan, is, uh, sh her work is showing at the Belkin currently. It's called Stations, Some Recent Acquisitions. So if you're interested in that, you can also check that out. Okay, thank you so much, Amy. Take care. Bye. At Dunkin' Donuts, each and every radio show is brewed fresh and served fresh at the peak of its flavor. If you're a tough customer, only the taste of this radio show will do. So go ahead, let Dunkin' Donuts make your radio experience exquisite. Indeed. <laughs> Dunkin' Donuts, serving sweet treats from the pop underground. Thursdays, noon to one. A stack of records here, a stack of records there. I got records scattered all over everywhere, but I'm looking Discorder Magazine has been supporting independent music for over 30 years, and it keeps on living by joining efforts with local music supporters such as Vinyl Records. You can find a selection of Vinyl Records' as featured albums on the back cover of Discorder and can support your favorite local bands and artists by purchasing their records. For more information on their vast selection of new, used, and rare music, go to vinylrecords.ca. Hello everyone, it's Silvana once again for the Arts Report. Um, today I have a very special review. I once again have been to the Polygon Gallery. Maybe if you tuned in way back in October, I did a review of Third Realm. Um, and this was a really, really cool exhibition. Um, this time there are three different exhibitions that are uh, currently at the Polygon Gallery. They will be up until February 7th, so it's pretty early still. Um, don't be afraid about um, restrictions. I know we are all staying safe. However, you can still go to the Polygon Gallery, maintaining social distancing and wearing a mask. It's truly a magical place to go during this time and really support the art scene in Metro Vancouver. The exhibitions right now at the Polygon Gallery are A Potlet for the Sky, Everything Leaks, and Miradas Alternas. I will start by saying that I really, really liked all three, but I must say this time I do have a favorite. <laughs> um, and it would be Miradas Alternas. I will talk about it later, but it's mostly because it's a Latin American artists and female artists. Um, and I feel very connected to that because I am um, Latin American, so that's a little bit about myself and how I connected to um, this particular exhibition. However, all three I thought were really, really cool. Um, I will start by talking about a pot lid for the sky. So um, this part of the exhibition features the work of Christopher Lacroix, in conversation with the work of American artist John Baldessari. Um, I believe John Baldessari is um, an artist that was pretty active around the 70s and there are some of his work at the Polygon 
But as I said, they are they make part of a larger conversation that um, Lacroix has with his art. So um, this is a very interesting, very kind of meta exhibit. The first thing that catches your eyes is, you know, those big balloons that are kind of metallic that people usually buy for like events when it says like Happy New Year or when it's your friend's birthday and then you write, you, you get them the number. So it's like 21, 22, 23. And he interprets these balloons as like empty letters, empty words. They make empty words. And these all lie in the center of the room. They still have some air, but not completely. Um, and they go side by side with a video of Lacroix actually squishing these balloons, <laughs> some of them, um, in a very interesting sequence that says, it kind of seems like random letters, but um, you eventually catch up to some patterns that, say, that says, I'm sorry, you're welcome, and then you're sorry, I'm welcome, which is very interesting. It's kind of like asserting oneself, but also denying what's oneself, and um, he ties this to his um, experience as a queer artist. And he also has other photographs of this type of aluminum metallic uh, papers that are um, bundled up that are also very intriguing. I must say something that like struck me a lot was the fact that there was a really big diploma frame that didn't have anything on it like it was just blank and what it did say is it said university of british columbia which is his alma mater and as we know catr is located at the ubc campus which is located in the traditional ancestral and unceded lands of the musqueam people um so i thought it was really interesting because i mean i also go there so it's like whoa what um however um he had literally erased everything like the whole content of like who had probably earned this diploma which i guess what it was himself was literally erased with the erasers of a lot of pencils um, that are also in the exhibit and they they all say this one particular phrase that was originally said by john baldessari actually that says i will no longer make boring art or something of the like. And it's this conversation with like, what is art and how institutions um, sometimes tell us what like art is and to what extent do we wanna let them tell us what art is and the way that we should experience it. So it was very, very interesting. Um, I thought it was like, wow, I cannot even imagine what it would be like to erase my own degree. Like, oh my God. And another piece that was also pretty striking, and it has to do with the theme of institutions and especially academia and art, is he had like a dissertation. And this dissertation had a lot of, um, I don't know, very interesting pages that weren't necessarily um, paragraphs of what a normal like academic essay would look like, but it's more like personal questions that he does to himself however they do have footnotes and there is like a ton of sources in his bibliography and they all have to do with um well a lot of topics but um especially queer theory there's um judith butler there's foucault there is a lot really a lot like pages and pages of bibliography and it's him like basically questioning how he puts his experience as a queer artist in art and is being queer his like his way of being an artist um i don't know i thought it was very interesting the way that he did these questions but was what was most the most striking is that he actually shot this dissertation with a rifle so okay so this dissertation thing is over there but it has all these like holes that go through the covers and through the pages and some of the pages are scanned and these are what we see plus the bibliography. I also thought that was very, very mind-blowing. <laughs> um, 
I will now talk about everything leaks. Um, I have a little, like, much less to say about this um, exhibit. However, I still th uh, thought it was very, very interesting. Um, it is an experimental collaboration between artists Marissa Kriangwiwat Holmes, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, and Maya Baudry. And um, they are both very concerned with leakage and photography. So um, the way they put it is that photographies contain, while everything leaks, photographies can contain. And they play with um, digital software and um, photographs, different images. And what I really got from it is that they both kind of were also in conversation um, with regarding to their um, methods and like their different processes. And they interplayed images. They, um, one of them actually knit a cushion and other um, kind of like soft fabric um, sculptures um, and there was also there were also some pieces in watercolors that were very very nice however yeah I definitely want to spend the rest of the, the time of this review um, talking about miradas alternas which means um, alternative gazes um, so I think in one of our previous shows um, Sarah did a shout out to the artist's talk and there was also a curator's talk uh, for Miradas Alternas, um, but I thought it was breathtaking and it was also heartbreaking. It features five female artists from Mexico that are challenging photographic representations of violence, especially violence inflicted on women. And this violence has oftentimes unfortunately escalated to femicides, which um, is basically when women get killed only because they are women. In Latin America and in Mexico especially, there has been um, a lot of rising cases ever since um, around 2015-16. Um, there are a lot of um, missing women, there are a lot of um, women that have gotten killed, and it is a terrible, terrible um, situation. There is fear and there is loss and very infuriating. To be honest with you, I did cry a little bit. And as I said, um, Miradas Alternas is composed out of five different artists. Her names are Juliana Alvarado, Alejandra Aragón, Coral Carballo, Mariseu Ertal, y Sonia Madrigal. Um, so they are all um, Mexican women and they are based in different, different cities or parts of cities. And... They include a very, very striking collection of what this notion of violence and especially against women, it ma manifests itself in Mexican society. Um, so for instance, there, there was this video that was called Te, which is like a... So in Spanish, we say Te amo. In English, you say I love you, but Te means like, it's like a second person. Um... I don't know exactly how to translate this, but um, so te means like I, but it, it also refers to you. Um, so it was very, very interesting how it was a collection of little um, graffitis that said like, I love you, or they were like love declarations. Um, you know, those like people that write their names on the wall and they're like you and me forever. Um, and how that is juxtaposed with the culture of um, machismo, so like chauvinism and like uh, patriarchy um, in Mexican society. So I thought that was really, really striking. Um, there was another one um, regarding this one girl who um, disappeared in 2011. Her name is Gemma. And the artist included a like some pictures that had to do with her life and she kind of like put herself in her shoes and like talked to her parents went to the places that she used to go and that one was also very very um heartbreaking it was all really really well or orchestrated between the work of the, these five women and at the very center of it there was a large um collection of miscellaneous so um there was there were um pictures 
Um, there was a Spotify playlist that you can also um, scan in your phone and it transmit as you know like music transmits so much so um, that is another way of getting into um, these women's shoes. Before and after they've been disappeared or found dead so it is a very very um, deep reflection of violence and fear and the dreams, um, the fairy tales that like um, sometimes women um, inhabit and how their realities end up being so different for a very very large number. So I personally feel very connected to the issue. Um, it is, as I said, not only a problem in Mexico but in many different parts of Latin America uh, and I'm sure in other places unfortunately um, Violence against women is very persistent. But yeah, Miradas Alternas, I thought it was a really, really great, really striking, really, really relevant topic. And I would definitely 100% recommend you visit the Polygon Gallery. Um, as I said, these three um, separate exhibitions will be on until February 7th. So um, if you can, go to North Van. <laughs> I really, really highly recommend it. Thank you so much for listening and have a great week. The world is a better place because of Kim Kardashian's empire, Cheetos, fleece material, and Discorder. It's a local independent music magazine from CITR. Which means that we can print whatever we heckin' want album and live show reviews, interviews with artists, and sweet illustrations grace our pages. And even you, listener, can contribute. Just visit citr.ca backslash discorder backslash contribute. You can grab it around town or read it at discorder.ca. Forever local and forever free. When you purchase the latest TV, tablet, or smartphone, don't forget to do the right thing with your old ones. Recycle them. The Consumer Electronics Association and its members are making recycling your old devices as easy as buying new ones. Just go to greenergadgets.org, type in your zip code, and you'll instantly find the recycling location closest to your home. You'll also find recycling tips, like asking the store where you buy your new TV if they'll haul away your old one. Don't let your old tech tools clog your local landfill. Just visit greenergadgets.org. Hey fam, I am back. You're listening to The Arts Report on CITR 101.9 FM and I am Sarah Unju and I'm going to talk about She Sells Seashells, which is a play being put on fully online by the United Players of Vancouver until February 14th. You can watch it at unitedplayers.com. And so now that we got that out of the way, I'm going to tell you just how good this was. I am so happy I got to watch it. So you should, you really should too. Um, also, I watched it at 7 a.m. because I'm in Turkey and it was live streamed. So <laughs> it was crazy. It wasn't even light out. I just woke up, tuned in, watched it. I would do it again. It was so good. Uh, so this play this play tells the story of Mary Anning who was a paleontologist back in 1800s and she finds an ichthyosaurus fossil basically and ichthyosaurus basically was the first complete fossil to be discovered in the early 19th century by you guessed it Mary Anning in England and so she Man, she has an inspiring story. So she gets struck by lightning when she was a baby. Um, all the other people who was with her die, but she doesn't. She survives getting struck by lightning. And then um, she lives a happy life with her dad and her mom and her brother. Well, until she was 11 or 12 and then her dad dies. Um, also, wow, major spoiler alerts, but I guess Mary Anning already died long time ago, so not that big of spoilers if you know her story. <laughs> and she she follows her his footsteps. Food? No, his footsteps. Because he was a paleontologist too, and she 
digs up fossils, sells them, and, you know, makes money. And considering that back in the 19th century, women weren't allowed to do anything, this is, again, as I said, really inspiring. And the way it was put on by the United Players of Vancouver, I just think that they did a really good job. So basically, there were three actors. Um, one of them only played Mary Anning, and her name is Krista Skwarok. I hope I pronounced that right. Also, fun fact, all three of these actors are Studio 58 alumni. So, and you know, we cover Studio 58 a lot, so it's fun. Anyways, okay. <laughs> and then the other two actors, Isaac Lee and Hannah Pearson, they play multiple characters and they do a good job of playing every single one of them. It's just really wonderful being able to watch a play with so many characters but so little actors and still be into it because they do such a good job switching from character to character that you don't really realize that it's the same person playing these two very different people you know it's 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 just it's really nice it's really good and okay so in the play, there are some musical and dance aspects, which I really liked. Also, I'm sorry if you can hear my shuffling. I'm just looking through my notes. Um, and by musical, I don't mean as in like musical theater that's sing and dance and tap dance all at the same time for the whole play. No, I mean like musical aspects, if that makes sense. It's just, uh, I think they incorporated it really well because it's a tricky line being able to incorporate it into a play like this um I don't know if I'm making sense you should watch it for yourself and find out what I'm trying to say so I really miss live theater man it's just I really wish I was able to see this in person they did so good and the play was really good and the directing was really good and the lighting and the music and the costumes do also oh my god the fossils sarah rogers mentioned this in our interview um apparently they bow but oh my god words they bought a fossil collection from an elderly gentleman and so the the fossils they used on stage are actual fossils which is pretty amazing that's that's just really cool also talking about cool something else that i think was a really nice touch was that on stage right no yep stage right <laughs> directions man there was a like a poster board type of thing and they switched it from scene to scene and so in the beginning it says a lecture and then the second one is like gents on the beach and then another one is saying goodbye and so it gives you more of an idea of what's happening in that scene because so basically what happens is that the play it, the story it starts out as a lecture as mentioned in the poster board and two people are telling um giving a lecture basically about paleontology and you know fossils and then mary anning joins the lecture and is like it's my time to shine i'm gonna tell the story <laughs> and she tells her story and it's basically you know what happens and so it's um it was a good reminder of, of what was happening there were just so many emotions I loved it felt so much there it was funny at times and very sad at times and I think that's a really good balance that every play should have unless I guess it's a comedic play then just want to laugh all the time I don't want to be sad in a comedic play but anyways that's besides our point wow my thoughts are very scattered today I apologize something I would love to mention is that um Mary Anning the character Mary Anning had a line that I just absolutely loved she said the girl who sold seashells by the seashore was now selling them to the British Museum which is, when you think about it, impressive, to say the least. Because uh, in the story, too, you'll see, like, she finds 
fossil she finds a vertebrae uh with um 35 or 38 um whoa you know what okay let's not get into details <laughs> but anyway see she finds a fossil and people think that it's fake and she's only doing it for the money and so the fact that she's able to just go from you know finding fossils and little seashells by the seashore and selling them to the common people i guess from that to selling them to the british museum is just amazing and yeah basically what i'm trying to say is definitely watch this play go to unitedplayers.com watch it give it a watch um i say this as wow okay that was a weird way to say it i'm so sorry basically check it out it's really good also while you're at it check out my interview with sarah rogers from our previous episode last week's episode because she does such a good way of she does a, such a good job of telling the story of mary anning and this play in general I'm not doing it justice. Sarah does a really good job. She's super sweet. So check that interview out. Okay, I am moving on to Tria of Trios. That's a tricky title to say. So this was a concert by West Coast Chamber Music. And they played Hayden Shostakovich and Heather Schmidt. And you might recognize Hayden and Shostakovich, but not Heather Schmidt. But um, I'll help you. I'll help you with that. Don't worry at the end of the show. So make sure you're here until the very end. <laughs> okay, so basically it was, you know, a trio. They had a piano, a cello, and a violin. And the performers were Angela Cavadas, Alex Kramer, Holly Duff, and Ellen Crane. And they were wonderful. They were amazing. So, okay, I grew up with classical music. I started ballet when I was three. Basically, ballet has been my whole life. And, you know, classical ballet uses classical music. Duh. Also, I used to go to classical music concerts with my family every Thursday and it's just it's a shame that we can't do it anymore because well i live in canada so that's impossible but it's just it was a wonderful time and so listening to this listening to this concert watching them play it just took me back to those times it unlocked some memories that i had forgotten which is oh, i mean i i was so happy it was so unexpected <laughs> but yeah um i really i really wish again i feel like with everything i talk about this year i say that i really wish it was in person because it really feels different when it's in person also um talking about this apparently they're hoping to play for a small live audience in april so hopefully if things are better by april you and i we all whoever wants to we can we can enjoy this live and you know unlock some more memories it would be wonderful and i really i don't have a lot to say i don't have much i could say because well you really can't judge classical music it's something wonderful and there's no going wrong with it and so instead what I'm gonna do is leave you with Wolf Moon and Thunder Moon by Heather Schmidt I really hope you enjoyed this show thank you for tuning in and I hope you enjoy Wolf Moon and Thunder Moon by Heather Schmidt who is a Canadian composer by the way so go Canada <laughs> And these two pieces are part of Lunar Reflections. There's also Blue Moon, which is the first one, but we unfortunately do not have time for that one. So thought I'd share Wolf Moon and Thunder Moon. Again, this has been the Arts Report on CITR 101.9 FM. 
I am your host, Sarah Unju. Thank you for joining. And I shall leave you with Wolf Moon and Thunder Moon that are part of Lunar Reflections by Canadian composer Heather Schmidt. This was performed by West Coast Chamber Music. And a big thank you to them for letting me broadcast their their performance. So enjoy. Thank you.